HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Welcome to Pizza Quest. I'm Peter Reinhardt, a man on a never-ending search for the perfect pizza. This show is the audio version of the Pizza Talk YouTube series, where I engage in interesting conversations with some of the country's greatest pizza makers and other artisans. Thanks for joining me on this quest. Welcome to Pizza Talk. And a unique day today because uh, we're excited to announce with its very creator, the launch of the new Modernist Pizza Book. Nathan Mirvold, thank you for joining us today. And uh, where are you coming to us from? Are you are you all the way back there in, uh, on the West Coast? Or are you somewhere well, out on the road? I'm in um, Bellevue, Washington at the moment. Bellevue, uh, looks like a laboratory behind you. Of, yeah, of, this is my laboratory office where um, <laughs> I took some of the pictures of the book and uh, where I hang out in between tasting pizza and making it. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's it's been a long time in coming. We've been hearing about it for a while. I've got my... Uh, an example of, uh, you know, one of the covers here. Um, yeah. uh, and we'll talk about it. We're going to talk a lot about this. Really, I, uh, it's almost like the all you could possibly want to know about pizza and more. Uh, <laughs> three volume, actually four volume encyclopedia, so to speak, of pizza, which are all the modernist books are really, I could say, encyclopedic in, in, uh, in scope uh, and unique in the publishing industry. And uh, uh I want to hear about how we got to pizza because we started out with modernist cuisine, went through modernist bread. Now we're at modernist pizza, but I just want to backtrack for people who don't know you and don't know about you. I mean, I first learned about you many years ago. I think when I first met you, I told you, I read this article. I think it was a profile in the New Yorker about this yeah. guy who worked at Microsoft. I don't know what year it came out. It must have been 20 years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, when I read the article, I went, Oh my God, this is like, the, this is like the, the whisperer at Microsoft. He's the guy that, that was always thinking five years ahead and stuff like that. But even that was only just part of your journey. Can you talk a little bit about, about this path you've been on that took you from the world of science and intellectual pursuit to, to the deep dive into food? Well, you know, it's a path that has lots of twists and turns, and many of them uh, make sense only to me and maybe not even to me. But... Um, <laughs> You know, as a kid, I loved math and science, but I also loved cooking. 
And uh, when I was nine years old, I made Thanksgiving dinner all by myself. And, and then, <laughs> then on, I was like the family cook. Um, while I was at Microsoft, uh, well, as I said, I became a physicist. And I worked uh, closely with Stephen Hawking. Uh, and we were working on quantum theories of the universe and uh, where space and time came from. Wow. Um, I, mean, I mean, what was that like? working with with you know essentially the guy who was taking us into new frontiers uh well Stephen was uh, a great guy to work with but it, it was very hard to feel sorry for yourself if you work for Stephen because even if you're having a terrible day uh before you could feel too sorry for yourself you think well here's this man who has just crushing physical challenges with his uh, condition. He had a ALS, mm. uh, which is a horribly debilitating uh, disease. And yet he had a great sense of humor. He loved to tell jokes. He would even sometimes say his condition was an advantage that helped him. Mm. Wow. Um, in part, he said, because he didn't have to go to committee meetings at the university, <laughs> But uh, also because he said it made him simplify all of the ideas down to just a very small number that he could keep in his head. So anyway, after that, I, uh, I sort of accidentally got into software and started a software company that Microsoft acquired. And I started working for Bill Gates and became the first chief technology officer at Microsoft. So, so you had your own company first, and, and, and but... How did you go from working with, you know, this physicist and, and weren't you also like, didn't you also study things like, like uh, a paleontology, weren't you, weren't you becoming like a dinosaur? Well, I, I also, I also do research in dinosaurs and <laughs> asteroids and a whole bunch of other different topics. So um, all this time you're like amassing all these different skills and talents and degrees. And, and are you, are you still asking yourself, what do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> Well, I, I've kind of given up on the growing up part. Um, uh, certainly uh, aging is affecting me. So it's not like I, age is uh, not an issue, but um, uh, I, I, I have yet to settle down to a single thing. And I don't think <laughs> I will at this stage. Anyway, after working at Microsoft for many years, um, uh, I decided I wanted to learn more about cooking. Uh, I got Bill to give me a leave of absence and I went to chef school in France. Uh, and then um, uh, after that, I, uh, I wound up retiring from Microsoft. And uh, I had hoped I could learn about modern cooking techniques, that there'd be some big book I could buy. And there are big books about Italian food or Japanese food or French food. But most of them didn't cover, at the time, the very most recent culinary techniques. Yeah. They would cover techniques up through, say, Nouvelle Cuisine period of France or mm -hmm. New American uh, food. Uh, the other thing is that, that the two different threads of my life had been quite separate, but um, people like Harold McGee started writing books uh, in the 80s uh, uh, about the science of cooking and how you could apply science to uh, lots of cooking things. And in fact, that 
a lot of things everybody knew in cooking were wrong. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that science could easily show that the stories that chefs told themselves and each other often were not really correct. Mm-hmm. So it makes a difference. So anyway, I looked to buy the big book of science of cooking. And when I couldn't find it, I wound up writing it. There you go. It's kind of like these two, these two paths are all of a sudden converging yep. and, and, and bringing your two, your two and almost separate worlds together into one, uh, one path. And, and along the way, you, you know, uh, you also started a company that invests in other really bright people. To, oh, I, I continue to do tech and, and scientific things uh, on the side. My company, Intellectual Ventures, uh, uh, invents things and we invest in people's inventions. Um, I've got almost a thousand patents myself. Amazing. Um, I mean, I remember when I visited, you know, uh, Miner's Cuisine, seeing uh, this room with a whole bunch of mosquitoes flying around it. I mean, and that was one of the, the first things I heard about intellectual ventures was that you were going, you were attempting to find a, a, a basically a way to wipe out malaria. I believe this was not a malaria yep. project. We have done a lot of anti-malaria projects, and that included novel ways of killing mosquitoes. Uh, the coolest of which was a system that would spot mosquitoes in the air and shoot them down with lasers. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, what else can you say? Oh, well, we're waiting for we're waiting for Captain Kirk to show up and you know <laughs> take you deep into unknown territories because uh, it is it's it's like uh, uh, almost uh, going to you know, like uh, going to a modern cuisine was like being at Willy Wonka land. You had all this like this amazing equipment behind you that's not cooking equipment per se, but but then yeah. and then there's a kitchen behind that, and there's and then you have a team of people who are just constantly pushing the the envelope of what happens when you ask questions like why, what, why, what happens when you do this or what's not true, you know, what are yeah. some of the great myths that you've busted that are out there in, in sort of the, uh, you know, the culinary <sighs> world that people. Well, there's, there's tons of them. I mean, in to big Brad, an area um, that is uh, uh, near and dear to both of us, um, kneading doesn't do what most books say it does, kneading or mixing. Um, in, in fact, the, uh, the thing that makes the gluten develop isn't the mechanical work. It's simply the, um, the, the flour getting wet. Mm-hmm. And the mechanical work helps the flour get wet evenly. It helps speed it up. But, uh, you know, another one is uh, for uh, rye bread, the reason that we don't have nice fluffy rye breads in the United States is that we have the wrong flour. We have terrible flour in the United States. It, first of all, the fluffiness of rye bread depends directly on the particle size of the flour. Uh-huh. The smaller the particle, the fluffier the rye bread. Okay. So- and uh, then you also want to have a special strain of rye that is uh, grown for bread. Well, it turns out we don't grow those in North America. North America grows rye primarily for animal feed. And then some of that is diverted to make flour. And the flour is usually super coarse. So Um, can that flour, if it is finely ground, make 
decent bread? Or is that why we mix so much wheat into that flour to make it work so for bread? So typically what we do to get a fluffy rye bread in the U.S. is we make a wheat bread and we flavor it with a little bit of rye. Yeah, exactly. And it's typically 10% to 30% rye flour. Yeah. Um, and above that, it kills the volume and it's not fluffy anymore. But if you have the right variety of rye and the right flour, you can make a fluffy rye bread that's 100%. And, and is that what they do in like Germany, places like yep, that? They have, they, have Austria. Never, they have a different They're, rye than we do, but, but we don't have people here who want to grow that rye? It's the weirdest thing. Okay, now, if I was talking about, I don't know, millet bread from Tibet, yeah. Then you might say, okay, fine. The U.S. doesn't have great to mill it. I'm just making right. this up. Right. But my God, Germany and Austria? Yeah. There's millions of Americans that have German or Austrian heritage. You do. I do. Exactly. Uh, there's millions of Americans that have lived in Germany or Austria. And there's millions of them that have lived here. Right, right. You'd think... Somewhere along the line, someone would have mentioned, oh, by the way, you guys are doing your rye breads all wrong. They well, yeah, I, never so, heard before not, I hadn't heard that until you brought it to our attention. You know? <laughs> yeah, and uh, nobody had. We, we didn't find anybody in the U.S. bread community that knew this. And frankly, the people in Germany and Austria weren't really aware of it either. They were aware there was a difference but they didn't really know why. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually we pieced it together and figured it out. Um, and it had originally been figured out by uh, uh, grain scientists in Germany. And uh, they had helped both select strains of rye that make better bread and tell everybody they had to grind it thinner or finer. Yeah. And so we did, now, if you take American rye, even though it's not the right variety, and you mill it yourself, mm -hmm. and you keep baking loaves, the finer you grind it, the the fluffier the loaf. It's just well, the damnedest thing. But but you know, there's an interest in rye bread now in the in the states. Uh, are and and with all the other interest in grains, the heirloom grains and the the land raised grains and the and regionally so you sure think but, someone would do this and i sure hope they do you haven't seen it yet huh you haven't heard Not of anything like, hey, we're doing it you know? no we've we've called we called everybody who every artisanal mill that made rye flour and every time we talked to them they would say well nobody's asked for this Make what people ask for. And then we'd say, well, what are your test results on rye? Because as you know, a miller will test the grain and mm -hmm. they'll have lots of different metrics of that grain. And my favorite response was a very highly thought of artisanal mill. That, and the guy said, well, it's rye. Why would we test it? it? Is it just because you didn't think there's a market for it? Is that the main reason why? Well, they weren't aware that there were tests that made a difference oh, for rye. I mean, it was just completely, they didn't think it was even relevant. So okay. it, it's an example of something that is, was right out in plain view. Say this mm -hmm. wasn't like we found the secret valley of Shangri-La where people right. knew how to do this. Right. You know, you can't drive on the street without seeing a, uh, a car from Germany. <laughs> 
figure this out you know that somebody's gonna if you're if you're watching right now you know <laughs> you heard it first here that we need to get the strain do you happen to know the, even the name of the strain of rye or the type oh yeah of it's all in the book okay that's and that's in the modernist red book yeah all that information so so yeah so and given that everything else under the sun has come out and is being you know tested and tried and marketed it's only in a matter of time that somebody's going to come and say i've got the right rye and we're going to we're going to change the rye yeah. landscape here in america yeah it, now there is one white rye flower that works moderately well um it's made by bob's red mill uh-huh uh, so we called them up and we said, hey, you've got the best one um, of the things. And they said, really? Yeah. That? I mean, it was it was funny. Even the people that were doing the closest approximation didn't have any clue that they were. And that's that that's really because uh, uh, and, and it leads me to the next question, which is, you know, when you start to bring science into the <laughs> equation, which basically, you know, um, is being paralleled right now in society, you know, is when science meets, you know, with the, uh, the road of reality, uh, you get pushback. You get people who go, wow, that's great to hear. And other people that go, uh, I'm really entrenched in what my belief system and I'm not going to fight you on that. Did you get a lot of pushback in the, on, let's say for both the cuisine book and the bread book uh, regarding um, some of the things that you brought forth? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there are, uh, there are things that uh, a good example is in um, savory cuisine, there's a technique called confit, which originally comes from duck confit, uh -huh. which is a where you um, cook duck legs or thighs very slowly overnight in d liquid duck fat. Mm -hmm. And it tastes really good. <laughs> oh, what? <Yeah>. Awesome. <laughs> well, basically, I, I was thinking about this, and I thought, there's no way that those fat molecules can actually penetrate the meat. Mm -hmm. the, just the molecules are too large. They can't do it. So if you cook the same meat with a steamer or with anything else for the same time at the same temperature and then sprinkled oil or fat on it, mm -hmm. it would have to be the same. Mm -hmm. So we did experiments and sure enough, there's no way you can tell the difference between sous vide or steamed or braised. Temperature matters, time matters, but not the cooking in fat. It wasn't the fat that was the difference maker, uh, despite the fact that the people who, who are in love with this technique are going to hold on to it being, you And know. so then people, one French chef says, I do not believe this. Yeah. And I said, well, it, it, it's not a belief. It's a proposition you can test. Mm -hmm. And so you test it and you see if you can taste a difference. <laughs> Uh, and it, so you find that in cuisine, uh, the world of bread is full, full, full of such things. Yeah. You know, you, you have people that say, oh, you can't uh, make uh, good bread with tap water because of the chlorine. Mm -hmm. um, well, we thought, let's try it. So mm -hmm. we tried making bread with distilled water, with 
deionized water, softened water, tap water, and then finally water from my swimming pool, <laughs> which has you know like a hundred times the amount of chlorine. Oh my gosh! As um, right. As, as any spring to test have. that, we would we put we had these flasks, and we'd mix the same amount of flour, water, and yeast. Mm-hmm. Mix them in the flasks. They put a balloon over the top. So if the balloon puffs up, that means the yeast is making CO2. Mm -hmm. They all puffed up. Yeast didn't care. You you could make bread with swimming pool water. Now, I don't suggest that you do. It tastes awful. (laughs) But if you're worried about will the yeast grow, and the yeast is strong, the yeast doesn't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. So so I know that... uh, you know, it's really hard when people are invested in a method or a technique that was a difference maker for them in their in their own journey. That to have somebody come in and challenge that and say, "Okay, yeah, maybe it works for you, but it's not. It's not. That's not the difference. Yeah. Maker. Something else." Um, uh, and and uh, I think I remember when we were you're doing the book. Uh, there were things about uh, challenges that you were making to whether whether it was pre ferments or steam or I mean all the things that makers hold near and dear to themselves that were, I would call them uh, myth-busting sort of moments. Yeah. Well, it turns out there were a lot of myths to bust. Um, and uh, some of them are things that really matter in the sense that they could streamline the way you make something. That's like this comfy example. You don't have to have big cauldrons full of rendered duck fat to yeah. make comfy. That's a great convenience, a great cleanup, a great everything. Right, right. There's other things that are more of a curiosity-driven thing. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I remember reading, um, the first place I read this was in Julia Child's cookbook. She had an elaborate recipe for a baguette. And she said the secret of baguettes is that you need to have steam in the oven at the beginning of the bake. Uh-huh. Now, I was probably 10 years old at the time I read that initially. And I'm like, wait, how could steam make something crispy? Should make it soggy, right? Uh-huh. Well, of course, many years come go by. We're working on the bread book. And I say, hey, let's discuss exactly why steam um, makes um, a crust crispy. And we looked it up, and it turned out there was no agreement. There were two dominant theories. And so far as we could tell, although they both had a little bit right about them, they also were both wrong. Um, they, they, they kind of, at least one of them had to be wrong because they were contradictory. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> and so we did tons of experiments. We eventually figured out why it works. And... It, amusingly, the key to figuring out why it was works uh, was uh, bagels and bao. Mm-hmm. So bagels, of course, you steam before you bake them. Yeah. So if steam always made something crispy, how come bagels are not crispy? Yeah, they're chewy. Yeah. Never describe a bagel as crispy. I would say it's chewy. Right, exactly. Well... Of course, a bow is steamed all the way, right? It's the entire 
cooking uh baking of a chinese bao is done on yeah, the a little soft buns yeah and uh it turns out that the skin on them is strong enough that you can peel them like an orange mm. and actually pull the whole skin off in one piece and that that's what led us to do some tests on the skin and basically what the the reason you have a crispy crust on a baguette is that you first form a skin and that skin is similar to the skin on bao or bagels mm -hmm. but it's much thinner mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you wind up uh baking it crisp so it's kind of like the skin on a chicken or something you're you you, you went that 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 the crisp well, up but it doesn't happen from in that first few minutes the reason that it leads to our our bite as crispy is because it's fragile and thin. So as you know, the baguette, um, you slash it, right? Mm -hmm. And those are called the grinia or ears. The... Yes. Well, if you, next time you have a baguette, cut carefully through and you'll see that the crust is way thicker in those rough parts. Mm. The thicker appears to us as crunchy, yeah. not crispy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what's important is you have steam at the beginning of the bake, but not for too long. Mm -hmm. If it's too long, it makes a very thick crust, uh, and it winds up being more like a bagel. A bagel, yeah. So so basically, it's a two-part process. It's first to create the skin, then you got to crisp the skin. Correct. And that's the that's the the sort of the the missing conceptual step there. That's right. And with the bagel, it's the you leave it in long enough that yeah. the skin is too thick to crisp, and so you get a chewy, leathery kind of a skin instead. Totally different product. By the way, I'm sure you've been tracking that the bagels seem to be having another moment. Right now, <laughs> yes. there's, a, there's a big emerging artisan bagel movement happening, and in fact, I'm going to visit in two weeks uh, one of the one of the guys that's leading the charge in Philadelphia. Uh, Philip Korshak has a place called Korshak's Bagels. The lines <gasps> are around the block for this guy. He sold sold out by twelve noon every day, huh. and, oh, that's great. and he's doing a sourdough bagel that he's just again he's thrown his heart and soul. And here's the here's the link to what we're talking about today is he started out as a pizza maker. And so and he transitioned from pizza to so what are some of the myths that the myths that you busted in the in the uh, in the modernist pizza book that just came out um, <laughs> that that might surprise people? What are some things that you know would be surprising? Well, there's a almost everywhere you look in pizza, there's mythology. There's mythology about the water, that you need the water of Naples, or even more amusing to an Italian, the water of New York City. <laughs> right, right. Um uh I was just reading a thing about a pizzeria last week where uh, they were proudly proclaiming that they didn't use New York City water, but they set their tap to the same temperature right. as New York City water. Right. Well, as you know from making bread, whenever you make bread, depending on the incoming temperature and how much and how intensively you mix it, you get a dough temperature out at the end. Right. It doesn't make a different bread unless you really kill it. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and uh, even now there's <laughs> these uh, elaborate systems that will 
change the pH and the mineral content of your order to match New York City or match Naples or match Chicago. <laughs> Look, if, yeah. if, your, if your water is bad tasting, it, it, it's pretty straightforward to say, if, why would I put bad tasting water into my pizza? So, yeah. of course, if you have water that has a, an off taste to it, or it's super mineralized, so it, it feels slimy and kind of tastes soapy. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. yeah, don't use that for cooking, for God's sakes. Use, <laughs> you, use something that tastes good. But yeah. once you have water that tastes good, it truly, that is not the difference. So um, the pizzas of New York are not great because they're New York water pizzas. They're, they're, no. If they're great at all, there's something else that, that the pizza makes. <laughs> well, and that brings us to our next thing, which is, Old famous pizzerias are usually lousy. <laughs> I know that's that's another one. Like you're going to get some pushback from some people on that. But on the other well, hand, there's a huge difference. You just mentioned uh, a guy in Philadelphia who is is your words through his heart and soul into making bagels. Right now, the way to get a great product is to find the pizzolo, the man or woman who has thrown their heart and soul into making something great. Yes. And it, that if instead you say, well, yes, that person existed 70 years ago and now their, their grandkids are running the place. Eh, that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the amount of care that it takes is very, very high. And, uh, and so what we found is whether it's in Italy or it's in the United States, you know, if you go to the old famous places where you don't know the name of the pizzolo, yeah, you're probably screwed. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you go to the place where the 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 founder is there every day and watching the oven like a hawk and watching everything else, that's how you get quality. Or, or has found some way to transmit that passion and love to the next generation and to the people that keep the oh, flames. I, I don't want to say it's impossible yeah, for yeah. It to go to the next generation, of course. Um, in Italy, you sometimes get this weird thing where um, because it's cool to say that all your, your recipes came from mom or from grandma, yeah. people will say that. And this one... Pizzolo, he brought out this pizza to me and he said it was all just as his grandma made. And I just laughed at him. And he like looks at me like he's going to be insulted. And I said, the pizza is perfectly round. It was perfectly stretched. There's no, there's no discount. I said, so unless grandma was a perfect pizzolo, I don't believe a word of it. (laughs) And then he says, well, yeah, okay. But there you is that emotional connection that people have to their food that can sometimes <laughs> either it, it, whether it imbues actual flavor to the food, it it it, it, invet, it imbues passion and connectedness from the person who's making it that might cause them to put more more love into their work. Oh, sure, you can do that, but but usually in Italy, not always, but usually they go a little bit overboard and they'll yeah. say all my recipes all my stuff you know i wish i was as good and then you know the italian chefs that are friends of mine when i say that i say god isn't it a shame when scout talent skips a generation <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Whoa, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. and well, 
And the reason that, but the, here's the, the part that's bad about that, which is it encourages an idea that there's no innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It encourages the notion that, oh yeah, all the good shit happened 50, 100 years ago. And we're just trying to eke our way back up to that. And it's not true for bread. Yes. And it's not true for pizza. Yes. Either one. I think you said it in, in Modernist Bread, and I've said it in my books and, and in, in many conversations, that the bread that we're eating today is probably some of the best bread that's ever been made in the history of the world. Absolutely. And, and I think the same is true about pizza today, don't you? We are having the best. We're eating the best pizza. Now, if you say, does that mean every pizza is great? No. And just like every loaf of bread is not great. Right, right. But what we have today is we have, in the case of bread, we have this dichotomy between mass-produced industrial bread, mm-hmm. which is cheaper than ever before in history. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, which is something, okay? Yes. It, it's, it, that's the, ma- and unfortunately, that bread was created and honed with price as a, just about its only metric. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And if you say, I want cheap to the exclusion of all else, well, then you get cheap, but it may not be very good. Okay, but the artisanal breads we have today are better than anything people had in the past. Absolutely, they are. And and, and I think, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, just ironically <laughs> today, I received in the mail right before we went on air, I pulled my mail, and I get this, this card from um, uh, D- Domino's Pizza saying, join our team. And I'm thinking, okay, so Domino's in a way, we are the largest producer of pizza in the world, blah, blah, blah. You can make a whole lot of money, et cetera. And this represents a category of pizza that uh, it really dominates the marketplace with a couple of other companies between three companies that probably, they probably sell 80% of the pizza. And then I got, you know, your modernist pizza in front of me and I, and I open it up and I see this wonderful page of uh, 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 what you call the Frico Slice. I love this. Yeah. Like, and how to and, and which basically to, you know tells people how to do something that they ne- might not have ever thought was possible to do with a slice of pizza to bring in sort of the the, the qualities of crisp and everything else in, yep. when they read a, a slice of yesterday's pizza. Um, so so you talk about innovation, and that's what I really want to get to is is that what have been some of the the innovations that are moving the dial forward and are separating I don't want to say the wheat from the chaff, but the mass produced. Uh, versus the, the, these special me- memorable pizzas? I mean, all around the world, we have found great committed people who are, uh, who have thrown their heart and soul into making pizza. Um, uh, we g- caught some grief for saying that Portland was the single best city for this. <laughs> Not for um, me. I agree with you. <laughs> um, uh, but it's actually been hard. You know, if you talk to Chris Bianco, who's one of the great pizzolos in the United States, yeah. really championed the artisan pizza movement. Um, he's in Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, but he's from New York. Right. <laughs> but if you, but I asked Chris, I said, would you have been able to do what you did if you'd stayed in New York? He says, absolutely not. Uh, interesting. He said, I was, if I had stayed in New York, I'd have all these people demanding the, regular things and demanding them at the regular price. Maybe the way they always were. Yeah. And well, you know, like his special, one of his special pizzas, the Rosa has pistachios and red onions as yeah. its main ingredients. Yeah. Now, 
Nobody back in the neighborhood. That wouldn't have flown on. Probably any- wouldn't have. Yeah, I, I hear you. We'll be right back with more Pizza Quest right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com. Welcome back to Pizza Talk, and I'm here with Nathan Mirvold. We're I mean, the time's going by really fast. I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, and I know you don't have hours to share with us. So I really appreciate the time that you're giving, uh, you know, us to talk about this. But uh, uh, yeah, and we are here to talk about the launch of a book that I remember when you were working on Modernist Bread. When you when you were working on Modernist Bread, I remember uh, you were already, you know, going after pizza in a big way, yep. you know, and. And so how did that happen? How did you, how did the transition happen? How did you decide this is going to be our next big one? Well, we did a, a chapter on pizza in Modernist Bread. And in the process of doing that, we realized both how popular a food it was and also how full of its own weird superstitions it was. Mm. Uh, and so we thought, well, hey, here's an opportunity for us. Um, you know, it's also, it's the world's most popular uh, sort of uh, imported cuisine. Uh, you know, it, people in Naples eat pizza, of course, they always have, um, or at least back to the 19th century they have. But uh, if you look at the dish that is imported to the most countries in the world and is eaten the most times, I'm certain it's pizza. And, and even if they don't call it pizza, something like pizza under a different name. Uh, uh, by the way, I want to point out to uh, to our viewers because uh, some people are watching this, you know, on on the video version, and some are hearing it on the audio version. So if you're if you're listening to the podcast, you're not seeing this photo that I'm holding up, but this is one of the covers, and it's uh, one of the things that modernist all the modernist books are noted for is this spectacular photography. Uh, which is almost molecular in its own right. It takes you so deep into these things. And I'm holding up a photo of, uh, of sort of that suspended animation or the gravity-defying, you know, layers of a pizza in, in its various forms. Um, uh, really cool stuff. You must be having a lot of fun shooting the photos for these books. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, in that case, uh, when we were doing modernist cuisine, there was, um, I, I had remembered that as a kid, I worked on my mom's car. And 
if you got a children's repair manual, which was this thing would tell you how to take a car apart and put it back together, for something like a part like the carburetor, it would have a, an exploded diagram. And the uh, exploded diagram would show all of the parts floating in space and it would show you in one picture how it all went together. Interesting. So uh, we started doing that for sandwiches in modernist cuisine, which we did. We had a few of. And then I thought, hey, this is the perfect way to show all the things that go into a pizza in one picture. So we have the dough. Yeah. You know, the rolled out crust. Yeah. We have the sauce and toppings as different layers floating as if they're all about to like collapse and land together. And then at the very bottom, we have the finished pizza. Well, I know that, that there's a lot you can do with photography, but to make, you know, to make things happen like this, but obviously this, this can't be just from one single shot. <laughs> it, it is. Well, we, we've got a couple different ways of doing it. It is possible to do it from a single shot, but uh, often we, it takes multiple takes. Um, so who would have thought that modernist, uh, the modernist books can, can trace their heritage back to, to like Mechanics Illustrated? And, yeah, and absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I went on a, a little mission to try to figure out who invented the exploded diagram. Yeah. And I'm not 100% sure, but there are uh, some of the mechanisms that Leonardo da Vinci drew in his notebooks, wow. his crazy machines, have something very similar to an exploded diagram. Interesting. So now we can take oh. it all the way back to Leonardo. And now, <laughs> and now everybody loves you, right? <laughs> oh, yes, he's one of ours. <laughs> well, uh, and, and before we get into photography, uh, you know, because you, you do seem to love taking photos of all different types, you now have like, what, four galleries of that, that, yep. that display and sell uh, uh, wall size yeah, the, paintings. Originally, I took pictures for the books, both to, uh, in a didactic way, to teach people things, but also to make them beautiful. But then we got enough uh, requests for people buying the pictures that uh, I currently have four galleries in uh, Las Vegas, New Orleans, La Jolla, and Seattle. And there we just sell pictures, uh, 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 typically pictures from the books. I know, and I've been to the one in Vegas, and, you know, it's pretty spectacular. I mean, it's wall art you've created, you know, and, and even one of the books that Modernist has published is just a whole book of the photography from Modernist Cuisine. Yep. So, so it is, you know, it is its own art form, uh, which, again, uh, coming back to pizza is kind of full circle, the the forward, or one of the the, I guess it's the forward statement uh, in this in the new book, is written by Tony Gemignani, one of our favorite pizzaiolos and sort of a rock yep. star in the pizza world. And one of the things that we love about Tony is just, you know, his catchphrase is respect the craft, and he's printed it on every box, and you know, and uh, and he's taken this notion of passion to you know to to exemplify what it is about him and the kind of people he's looking for to train for the next generation. Yeah, and I, I mean, I really think that's important. Um, it, one of the advantages, frankly, that uh, Italy has, uh, particularly Campania, is that being a pizzolo is a profession there. It's a respected thing. You know, whereas uh, most chain pizzerias in the U.S., because they're going for price, it, it's a, a job for 
young people for only a certain phase of their career, typically, and typically pays minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing that I love about Tony's uh, respect the craft thing is if you're a little pizzeria, that's your best chance to shine is to do a great job. Yeah. Because it's really hard to beat uh, these chain guys at making $5 or $10 pizzas. Sorry. it's That's super hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. You've got uh, whereas to- making a great pizza that people are more than willing to spend a little bit more money for, mm-hmm. that's something you really can do as an individual that these big companies haven't managed. And we've seen the same sort of pattern in a number of areas of, of the uh, food craft, uh, whether it was with bread, it happened with the artisan bread movement. It's happening in the craft beer movement, the cheese Absolutely. movement. It's a very similar pattern. And it's almost <laughs> like the reinvention of the craft that existed before industrialization. Uh, and and it's a way back in, you know, to, to and, and, that level. You know, when, uh, I, I like to use coffee and chocolate. You know, when I was a kid, Coffee meant U-Ban or Folgers. Those are the brands mom bought in a can at the grocery store. And uh, chocolate was mostly Hershey's. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, today you can still get Hershey's and U-Ban and Folgers. But it's a so much nicer world, or at least you have the choice to go get an artisanal chocolate bar Mm -hmm. or a fantastic latte that's mm-hmm. made with a very specific coffee from a very specific slope. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's it's those things that really connect great producers directly with the um, customer that is the hallmark of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the people who figured it out first were the wine folks. Um, yeah, that's true. That, that you know, Great wineries in France had already been identified hundreds of years ago. Um, not to say there aren't new great ones, but uh, it, the challenge with something like pizza that's a fresh food that should be eaten quickly is that a pizzeria has to find its audience. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think hewing towards quality is is the answer. That's that's what we found in this. You know, I should say one of the things that's different about this book than uh, our other books is we thought it was essential that we travel the world and visit pizzerias. So we went to nearly 300 pizzerias around the world, intensively tasted and photographed what they did, mm-hmm. uh, interviewed them and have them tell us as much or as little as they wanted. Um, interestingly, almost everyone was entirely open and told us everything. Good. Um, uh, the few pizzerias that didn't tell us very much, uh, it's funny, there was this very persistent effect that they usually also weren't very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I tell my, my people, I'd say, you know, we don't need to learn how to do this. Right. All right. If he doesn't want to tell us how they screwed it up, we won't. <laughs> but it, uh, it's... The reason we had to do that is that pizza hasn't been a cuisine uh, that people write about. Um, you know, probably every three-star Michelin chef in the world and lots of one- and two-star chefs have a cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, 
most pizzerias don't have a cookbook. Yeah. It's actually very rare for a pizzeria to have a cookbook. Um, and so instead, uh, you know, it relies on somebody like you that's written a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are some, you know, um, Dan Richter of Raza, great pizzeria in, uh, in uh, um, Jersey City, has written a book. And Mark Vetri wrote uh, a book. And there, there's a number that are written by them. But for every um, great uh, pizzola that's written a book, there's probably 10 more that happened. Oh, that's it. And, and, and they're starting to pop. <laughs> it's a new phenomenon of you know, books that... Uh, it is a new phenomenon, and it's, but it's part of this notion of making a pizzola be something that has some respect to it. Right? That it's very hard to recruit good people yeah. to a profession if you also don't respect that profession. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the quality improvement we've had in American food, both uh, in American style food as well as just other food in America, is we started respecting chefs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you respect chefs and you have celebrity chefs and you have that whole phenomenon, it trickles down to something that encourages people to go into that field rather than say, no, I'm going to go be an ophthalmologist or yeah. an investment banker or, or some other thing that a talented person could do. Yeah, yeah, it has it has cachet now, and it uh, and it's it, it's earned respect from the public. This this the American public didn't ever bring that opportunity to the chef community until more recent times, and now it's kind of worked its way into the pizza community. Which which it's like you say, well, of course, pizza is the most popular food in the world, but why do you think it's the most popular food? What is it about pizza that makes it work for so many people and, and elicits such a uh, you know, a, a, a response, an emotional response of well, activity. Okay, so it combines a couple of things. One is fresh baked bread. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I do to tease professional bread bakers is I always say there's a way to, to find out if someone is a professional bread baker or a real person. Mm-hmm. And that Real people love the smell and the taste of bread coming right out of the oven. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, a professional will say, no, 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 you must let it cool first. <laughs> and it, they, there's something to that because, uh-huh. of course, you want bread that will last and last long enough to go home. And I understand why they want that. Yeah. But, man, the smell of fresh, hot bread is awesome. Well, yeah. you get that with pizza. Yeah. You also get cheese and uh, some uh, sweet and tart, both from tomatoes uh, and then often some meat and other veggies. It's close to a a, a perfect, uh, a perfect meal. Um, And it caught on, you know, the, the place it caught on. I think it's important to realize it, it caught on the United States, not in Italy. Uh-huh. Um, it was a street food in Naples in the 19th century. It came to the United States uh, and to South America when uh, people started emigrating and leaving Naples. There's very strong but very different pizza, pizza cultures in Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo, uh, for example. Yeah. 
but it was the U.S. where it struck a nerve and it became super popular. Um, you know, during World War II, the uh, New York Times ran a cooking thing with a recipe of here's how to make pizza. Now, Italy was actually our enemy in the war at that time. Interesting, yeah, yeah. Didn't phase them a bit. Yeah, Okay. Um, You didn't see a lot of Japanese food recipes or German recipes in the times in that era. It took a while to get to that point. Pizza had already been adopted. Mm, Yeah. Um, And it uh, it also helps that pizza wound up... uh, mutating a bit wherever it went. And so you develop lots of local styles. You know, the first fast food chain in the United States was pizza. It was not hamburgers. It was not fried chicken. It was no other kind of American food. Shakey's had the first franchised thing in 1953. Amazing. And most people don't know that. Yeah. Um, So it, it... it's something that struck a huge chord in the U.S. Yeah. And uh, if that had not happened, I think pizza would be a very small phenomenon that was only came from Naples. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when I say that, some people say, no, no, people would have discovered it. And then I say, okay, tell me about pizza frita. Because mm-hmm. in Naples, they have this thing called pizza frita. It's basically a calzone, which is a turnover, a pizza turnover. You you dress it just like a pizza, but on half. You fold it over, and then you you thump and seal the edges, and you deep fry it. Yeah. Americans love deep fried food. Americans love pizza. So surely we all eat deep fried pizza, right? You would think. We don't. And no one has been able to explain why that occurred. Mm. Apart from that original pizza that got going was a baked pizza. And uh, I, 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 I don't think there's any rational reason that you would say that. Except if you look around Italy, almost every region of Italy mm-hmm. has some very interesting, very different kind of a food mm-hmm. that's made nowhere else mm-hmm. that never got out. And the same thing is true for many pizza-like things in other areas. So uh, in uh, southern Germany, northern France, in the Alsace, mm-hmm. there's something called Flammkuchen, yeah. or tart flambe. Yes. For all intents and purposes, it's pizza. Yes. Right? It's a bread uh, dough. On that, you put cheese and uh, some red onions. And it's wonderful. <laughs> it went nowhere. Okay? It, it, it. No matter where you and I were in the United States, if I said, Peter, let's go out for pizza tonight, we totally could. Yeah, yeah. If I said, let's go out for Flammkuchen, yeah, I know. I'd say, I'd say we got to get on an airplane. <laughs> and maybe not even then. We better call ahead. But you know what? I believe, and I'm not going to make a prediction right here, that 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 Tartflam Bay Flammacool is going to be a thing. It's going to happen. It's going to oh, happen. It will. It's on the verge of tipping over, I think. So w- one of the things that 
to, to sort of jump at it in a different way. The, the pizza world is very funny because on one hand, it, it shares with Italian cuisine this uh, somewhat misplaced mania for authenticity in history. Yeah. At the same time, people want to do something new. Um, and so you have this funny things like Roman style pizza. Uh, uh. And I say it's funny because in we have traced at least four totally different types of pizza that all swear they're Roman style. <laughs> and the oldest one of these dates from about 1991. <laughs> okay, so this is not some ancient tradition. Why does Roman style pizza appeal to someone? Well, if you want to make, if you're opening up a new pizzeria, mm -hmm. it's great to be able to differentiate your product so it's not exactly like everybody else's. Right. Yet at the same time, it's scary for people to do something that's totally unique. So instead of this, ah, we'll do Roman style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, depending on which Roman style there's, because there's four different ones. That's it. Um, and, it and we've seen them at the Pizza Expo. You see all <laughs> all these different booths and, and they all say Roman style pizza and they're all very different from each other. Um, or you find people, uh, you know, when we were, we tried to cover as many styles of pizza as we could in the book. And there's a lot of styles that you covered for sure. But there's always new ones, largely because you'll, like someone said, well, you don't have Rocky Mountain pizza. What's Rocky Mountain style pizza? <laughs> Well, we traced it to one pizzeria. Now that one pizzeria, okay, to be fair, I think they have three branches. But that to me, that's not a regional style if one place has it. It would like to be. Well, uh, no, it's a wannabe. It's only a wannabe. Someday would wannabe. Like Old Forge is another example <laughs> you, you pointed to as a, you know, it's one little town in Pennsylvania, but it, it does, it did somehow brand itself, right? Well, they have the most marketing chutzpah of anyone in the pizza world right, right. Uh, because they proclaim themselves the pizza capital of the world. Yeah, that takes a little uh, chutzpah for sure. Um, and it, it's a town of 7,000 people that has seven pizzerias, all of which make an effectively identical pizza. Yeah. Why would you need seven pizzerias doing effectively the same thing? Because you're the capital. <laughs> but then the style of the pizza is so strange. Um, it, it's it's like I would imagine uh, pizza at a middle school cafeteria. Um, it's made on a white bread kind of a crust that's bar baked. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, a doughy white bread crust, maybe a quarter to a half inch thick. <laughs> so you were underwhelmed by the old fortune. Okay, no, no. Here's okay. the cheese they use. Yeah. Velveeta. Velveeta or American cheese. Amazing. Amazing. Now, these people are all of Italian descent. And you have to say, what possessed them <laughs> to use American cheese? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I sort of asked. And they said, well, uh, it melts real good. <laughs> it's like, and that happened to me with Philly. When I go back to Philly and I see the cheesesteaks that are made with Velveeta too. 
you know, I feel like I would love to keep talking and talking and talking about this, but uh, we're running out of time. So I want to just kind of, uh, and number one, let, let all of our listeners know, first of all, the book is out. It's, it's, it's uh, there's like in each volume covers a different thing. There's the history volume, there's the techniques volume, and then there's a zillion recipes. And, and one of the things I noticed about the recipes that's so cool is that you've got all the traditional sort of res- uh, versions of pizza that we know about. But you've got a great creative team. You've got uh, a creative director in Francisco Magoya, who you are constantly pushing the envelope on how to do this. So you're bringing, again, your passion for science and craft together to show people not only how to do it the old school way, but where it can go in the future. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, uh, look, there's no reason for us to think that pizza has to be limited to um, – you know, tomatoes and mozzarella cheese, as much as I love those things. Yeah, right. You know, it, the there are so many ingredients that uh, I have had that truly great, talented pizzolos have put on the pizza that just blow my mind. And I, I think that has to be a good part of the pizza experience is yeah. people trying to... and. That's not the same as, as a phenomenon I call putting weird shit on a pizza. Right. Um, you can always put weird stuff on. Yeah. The question is, does it really hang together? Does it have a compelling flavor and texture profile? And it often it can. And I think that really that's how pizza, uh, certainly that's how the small uh, production artisanal pizza, whether it's at home or in a small pizzeria, that's the direction it should go is towards creativity and quality. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this, for, for, for bringing your love and passion and resources to create a whole new publishing you know, genre of modernist cuisine books, uh, bread, pizza. And I know coming down the road, there will be more. Uh, yeah. You mentioned uh, recently that you may be approaching pastry as another category. So Nathan, yeah. Mirable, thank you so much for joining us today, for being a part of this and for, and for bringing out modernist pizza and uh, folks, you track it down, either get it through Amazon, you can go to modernistcuisine.com and order direct from them. And uh, uh, we'll look forward to hearing more as, as uh, you forge into new frontiers. And thanks again, Nathan. Okay, for, thanks, Peter. Uh, all right, we'll see you later. And thank Bye. all of you for joining us. We'll see you at the next time. Pizza Quest is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.